Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher and my colleague Julia Chatley. So good to have you with us. Lots to get through on today's show, including a flurry of interest rate decisions by global central banks. In the past few hours, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England have both raised rates by half a percentage point as follows the U.S. Federal Reserve's quarter percentage point hike on Wednesday. It is the smallest increase here in the U.S. uh, in terms of borrowing costs since last March. All three central banks warning that more hikes will still be needed before their inflation battle is complete. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell stressed that progress on prices is being made. He did not warn uh, investors that investors are getting ahead of themselves by anticipating an end to tightening. Reaction on Wall Street was positive. Tech stocks, which would benefit from a rate hike pivot, rallied 2% on Wednesday. They're back on track for another strong open today, helped along by solid results from Facebook's parent company, Meta. European shares are suddenly higher too, with UK-based Shell Oil reporting the best annual profits in its over 100-year history. We'll delve into that with our Paula Monica uh, later on in the show. But first, the latest on the Fed. The U.S. Central Bank raising rates for the eighth straight time on Wednesday, as expected. Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying progress is being made in the fight against inflation, but that it's too soon to declare victory just yet. The inflation data received over the past three months show a welcome reduction in the monthly pace of increases. And while recent developments are encouraging, we will need substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on a sustained downward path. Investors, however, betting that a Fed rate hike pause is coming soon. Their optimism fueled by Powell's comments that financial conditions have tightened as rates rise when in fact many argue the exact opposite. Let's bring in Christine Romans to break all of this down with us. So we are expecting some ongoing rate increases, but Jerome Powell did sort of try to damper expectations a bit just in terms of letting people know that, look, inflation is down in this country, but we're not out of the woods just yet. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about this super core inflation, very recent, you know, three-month annualized inflation kind of numbers that are back to target. And and the Fed chief was saying, look, look, outside of there, there are other parts of the economy where inflation is not coming down yet. So we're seeing progress, but the job is not fully done. And that was the message he was really kind of hammering home there uh, yesterday. But you can see a shift, however. You can see that um, the corner has been turned. How much further we have to go remains to be seen, but a corner has been turned. I mean, just look at all of those rate hikes beginning in March of last year. This is just really a historic kind of uh, a moment, one after another of these rate hikes. And it's interesting because the rate hikes have had a cooling effect in housing, no question. Um, We've seen mortgage rates rise, although they seem to have have tapered off here. They're just below um, the peak, but credit card interest rates are at record highs right now, and all other kinds of loans cost more money, including auto loans. So for, for average Americans, average consumers in the U.S. and around the world, quite frankly, they have felt 
keenly the higher rates, but they haven't felt the higher rates in savings accounts yet. And I think that that's an interesting part of this story, that disconnect between all of those rate hikes that are happening. But still, savers really have to to look hard to find online accounts that pay more than, uh, you know, one percent or something. So still work to be done. This is obviously um, an interesting moment at the beginning of 2023 for consumers who have amassed some funds through COVID and, and after. And now we're starting to act a little more cautiously, which might be exactly what the Fed wants to see. Oh, Christine, you brought up a great point about the saving rates, that despite the rate hikes, that savers are not benefiting yeah. from it as much as you'd anticipate. But uh, Christine, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. As you've heard, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England also raised rates by more than the Fed, actually. That's despite inflation in the UK easing in December to 10.5%. But the Bank of England's governor says it's premature to celebrate. The forecast suggests that inflation will come down and that it will fall quite sharply. But events may not unfold in this way. With inflation currently above 10%, we are in uncharted territory. Energy prices may not fall by as much as currently expected in financial markets. And even if they do, this period of very high inflation could play into price and wage setting in the UK economy to a greater extent than we assume in our central projection. Anna Stewart is following all the central bank drama from London. Let's start with the Bank of England there. So uh, 50 basis points increased the highest just in terms of interest rates the UK has seen since 2008. What was the tone? What sort of tone did Andrew Bailey give when it came to future rate increases? Well, you heard them. He spoke about uncharted territory in terms of inflation being over 10%. So while the outlook is looking better, certainly a bit cautious there. I never like to hear a governor of a central bank saying we are in uncharted territory. But listen, another half a percentage point. It was pretty much expected. It does take rates, though, to 4% here in the UK. That's the highest since 2008. Think about people's mortgages. That is going to hurt, given, you know, tracker mortgage rates are 3 or 4% higher than that. So that is going to be a problem for many people, I think, with mortgages. And I think that's why there was a division, as usual, on the uh, committee that sets the rates, the MPC. Two people actually wanted to keep rates unchanged. It was less divided, though, in recent months. The market is pricing in rates peaking at 4.5% this year. That is better than was expected. We were looking at potentially pushing past 5%. And as you heard from Andrew Bailey there, the inflation outlook, while it has been very grim, is looking better than they were expecting. They're expecting it to come down sharply. And while the UK will head into recession, and we've heard that now from the IMF and all the indicators looking pretty miserable, but it will be a shallower recession than the bank originally thought. Same. Certainly a modicum of good news there that it's shallower <laughs> than what people had been anticipating. Let's talk about the ECB raising interest rates, 50 basis points uh, as well. Just in terms of uh, economic growth, uh, just in terms of economic growth in Europe, I mean, it, it does remain stagnant at this point. What will this mean, this sort of basis point rise mean for economic growth more broadly across the eurozone, just, you know, given the cost of borrowing increasing here? Yeah, the rate rise was uh, as expected, really. It's a trickier position in many ways, the ECB, given it looks after so many different markets. And while we had some celebration earlier this week uh, that growth was much better than expected for the Eurozone, that was largely due to stellar performance from Ireland. As you say, economic growth for uh, the Eurozone is really sluggish. The rate is now at 2.5%. So it's actually earlier on in the rate cycle in many ways than the UK. The peak for that's expected to be 
between three and a quarter, three and a half percent by the summer. Uh, Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, is actually speaking right now. I thought it was very interesting that she said uh, going forwards, they will be raising rates significantly, she said, at a steady pace and at levels that are sufficiently restrictive. So while the outlook may be a little bit improved, while the Fed may be taking uh, a slower pace to rate rises coming up, I think the ECB is not going to be taking its foot off the gas. They do not want people to look at the improving outlook on inflation, for instance, which has peaked in terms of headline inflation and think that they're going to slow these rate rises. They are going to keep coming. Uh, And it's actually core inflation, which is pretty sticky still in the Eurozone. Right. Anna Stewart, line for us there. Thank you so much. All right. And later on in the show, we'll be hearing the view from former ECB Vice President Victor Constancio. That's in about 15 minutes or so uh, from now. Let's talk about Meta, Facebook's parent company. Their shares surging pre-market following its fourth quarter earnings report. Revenue was down 4% compared to a year ago, but topped Wall Street expectations. The Facebook parent company also announced a $40 billion stock buyback. Claire Duffy has the details for us. So one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg said that got everyone excited is this idea that 2023 for Meta is going to be the year of efficiency. And you think back to just a few months ago when Meta laid off 11,000 employees, he sort of intimated that there could be more layoffs coming. I mean, this is all about sort of streamlining uh, the company. That's right, Zane. This is a big change in tone for Mark Zuckerberg, who for the past year has been talking about the investments that he wants to make, the potential for the future of the company, his plans to build the metaverse, this future of the Internet. And so last night was a big change in tone, him talking about this being the year of efficiency and the changes that they want to make to sort of rein the business back in a little bit. He he talked about the fact that the company is planning to cut its capital expenditures over the next year. It's got a hiring freeze in place. And it sort of talked about the company's core business, the the digital advertising business, which has been struggling in this sort of economic uncertainty over the last couple of months. And I think that's exactly what Wall Street wanted to hear. They had been concerned, I think, that that Metaverse was a distraction for Meta. And so hearing him come back and talk about the core business, I think, is exactly what Wall Street needed to hear. And so much, there's been so much talk just in terms of the conversation around Facebook being, you know, it's all doom and gloom, that that users are declining, that people don't use Facebook anymore, it's for your grandparents, everybody's on sort of Instagram and other platforms. But really the numbers actually tell a different story. They're reporting that daily users actually hit a staggering 2 billion in the fourth quarter uh, for the first time. Talk, Talk to us about that. That's right. Two billion daily active users on Facebook around the world. It's a huge number and a really good sign for for the company because there had been concerns that especially TikTok was presenting a huge presenting huge competition, especially for the crucial younger users and that Facebook had become sort of the stagnant old platform that wasn't going to keep growing. The company has made some changes to Facebook over the last year in a lot of ways, making it more like Instagram, introducing reels and more recommended content. And it looks like that's paying off. Right. Claire Duffy, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Right, the U.S. expanding its military access to four additional locations in the Philippines, about 200 miles south of Taiwan. This is concerns rise over China's aggression in the region. Beijing criticized the U.S.'s move, saying it endangers regional peace. Uh, Mark Stewart. Uh, joins us now from Hong Kong. So, Mark, just walk us through what's going on here, just in terms of the U.S. trying to keep a much more closer eye on what China's doing, especially in the South China Sea. 
Indeed, Zane, this buildup in the Philippines is something that has been actually been going on since 2014. The U.S. has always had a presence in the Philippines since then. This move now is basically adding its potential reach. And you showed that map between uh, the between Taiwan and the Philippines, it perhaps gives U.S. troops a little bit more proximity. But again, we don't know exactly where they will be. But this fits into this broader narrative of the U.S. really beefing up its presence in the Pacific region. We have recently heard the announcement about a new Marine base in Guam. The U.S. military has also expressed support for the Japanese islands through, through military detail there. So this all fits into this broader narrative. And no surprise, China is is less than thrilled by this new agreement with the Philippines. The response has been strong. It has been sharp. Take a listen to the foreign ministry spokesperson. The U.S., which clings to a zero-sum mentality, continues to strengthen its military deployment in the region out of its own interests. It is aggravating regional tension and jeopardizing regional peace and stability. Countries in the region should stay alert and avoid being coerced by the U.S. This phrase, regional peace and stability, it is very firm and it is very emblematic about how China views this potential U.S. involvement in perhaps a a broader discussion about tension with Taiwan. It is interesting to note the timing of this. We saw Secretary Austin in the region, and now sometime in the near future, we are expecting a visit by Secretary of State Antony Blinken to mainland China itself. Of course, there will be lots to discuss, trade, human rights, but also Taiwan and perhaps this new move by the U.S. military with its presence in the Philippines. Zane, it will be interesting to see how that shapes the conversation. And talk to us about the relationship that the U.S. has with the Philippines. I mean, obviously, their their relationship prior to this was obviously a colonial one. The U.S. has a long history of, of colonization in the Philippines. And so this move is certainly, you know, triggering for certain left wing groups within the country right now. But just talk to us about how the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines is changing. Well, if anything, it's not necessarily, it's basically affirming this alliance that, as you mentioned, dates back centuries. But there has been a big shift in political leadership in the Philippines. And so this is a chance now for the U.S. to re-engage in the Philippines and to to beef up, beef up its presence. It is interesting to note, Zane, that as far as the U.S. commitment to the Philippines, there is tr- there, there is a treaty that binds the U.S. to the region. And so that, too, perhaps supersedes anything else. The U.S. does, by treaty, have to have a presence there and maintain an alliance in the Philippines. All right, Mark Stewart, thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, still to come here, these central bank governors are raising rates to get inflation under control. I ask a former ECB vice president, is it enough? Plus, later on the show, meet Mr. Sixth, the co-CEO of car rental giant, is here talking about good service, electric fleets and growth in the United States. Those stories next. All right, welcome back to First Move. Uh, in India, shares of Gautam Adani's business continues to fall in the wake of a short seller's fraud allegation. So far, the sell-off, get this, has wiped off about $100 billion 
of the value of his business empire. Today, Adani abruptly cancelled a $2.5 billion deal to shell, sell rather new shares in his flagship company, Vedika Sud is live for us in New Delhi with the very latest. So Vedika Adani is working with bankers essentially to refund uh, investors here. But just explain why they pulled this. Early in the day, Zen, there was a statement issued by the Adani Enterprise where they called this situation unprecedented. The statement also went on to talk about how the interest of the investors is paramount. But clearly, you've just spoken about the kind of wealth that the business has lost. We're talking about more than $100 billion and more than $50 billion of personal wealth of Gotham Adani. Now, these are unprecedented times for the company. Of course, uh, as far as the Hindenburg report is concerned, it's led to chaos in the Indian markets. The stocks have plunged, and that's the reason why Adani has decided to hold off on the offer of those 2.5 billion stock shares that he was selling to uh, potential investors. Now, Adani, till about last week, was the third or fourth richest man in the world, and He was the richest Asian. But after the stocks have plunged, he's not even in the top 10 richest persons list, uh, according to Bloomberg. Here's all that you want to know about this controversy that's raging on in India and about the man in the midst of it. Sustainable cities for tomorrow. Protests by opposition lawmakers in India's parliament on Wednesday highlighting concerns of the finances of an Indian billionaire. On the same day, his conglomerate, Adani Enterprises, called off its $2.5 billion share sale after a significant drop in share price. For me, the interest of my investor is paramount and everything is secondary. Even a statement from the low-profile businessman Gautam Adani wasn't enough to calm India's stock market. It all started after a U.S. research firm and short seller accused his business of fraud and stock manipulation. The Adani Group has denounced the allegations as baseless and malicious. It called the report a calculated attack on India, the independence, integrity and quality of Indian institutions and the growth story and ambition of India. The Adani Group, founded about 30 years ago, controls power stations, ports and airports with huge stakes in the energy and logistics sector, has long been linked to the wider success of India. The Indian economy has been growing as one of the fastest growing emerging markets in the world for a decade now. And that profound success story in India has certainly been a cornerstone of the Adani Group because they are investing in infrastructure in India. At the start of the pandemic, Adani's net worth was estimated to be around $13 billion. Today, Forbes estimates it's around $75 billion. Namaskar. This dizzying growth has often been flagged by detractors. Adani is seen as a close ally of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Critics say Adani's rise rested heavily on crony capitalism, which Adani has repeatedly dismissed. See, Prime Minister Modi and myself, both are coming from state of Gujarat. And that makes, makes me the easy target of a such business allegations. 
Analysts caution that the fallout of the report by Hindenburg Research not only poses a risk to the Adani Group, but to the Indian economy. In a normal case of events, the regulator would have stepped in and announced an investigation. But sadly, in this case, the regulator, at least for the public, has chosen to remain silent. The immediate impact has been obvious. More than $100 billion wiped off the value of his business empire. The wider challenge now for India's market regulator and the Modi government will be to try and cap the market chaos and regain the trust of nervous investors. The pressure is growing, Zain, both on the market regulator as well as the Indian government to investigate these claims. They've, this is a damning report and now all eyes will be on whether this really affects the Indian economy further. Zain. Right, Fedeka said <clears throat> live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, let's get back to those key decisions by central banks in the UK and the EU as well. Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England and Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank are both raising rates uh, more than the Fed this time around. The hikes are intended to bring down inflation, of course, but there are other consequences, especially on growth. Joining me live now is Victor Constancio, a former vice president of the European Central Bank and a former governor of the Bank of uh, Portugal. Victor, thank you so much for being with us. So the ECB raising rates uh, by 50, you're welcome, by 50 basis points, pretty much in line with what many of us had been anticipating. Your thoughts out the gate? Yes, uh, indeed, uh, everyone was expecting the 50 basis points. And I think uh, they are uh, warranted, they were warranted. Uh, and uh, uh, I think also that although uh, this time um, the president of the ECB underlined uh, very much that now they are on a meeting by meeting approach and totally data dependent, I think that uh, they will do and should do another 50 basis points uh, in March. And at most, in my view, uh, at most another 25 basis points and stop there uh, to observe if uh, indeed uh, inflation, as I think, will decline sharply according to the more consensual forecasts that exist uh, in the market and that put inflation in the euro area uh, at 3% uh, in December of this year and then around 2% uh, uh, next year. So already the level uh, of rates that now uh, after the uh, uh, hikes that I just mentioned would be at uh, uh, a level of uh, 3.25 for the deposit facility rate, which as you know is uh, in real terms the policy rate that counts uh, in this phase of monetary policy. And that would be enough then to lead the uh, inflation rate to the levels I mentioned, approaching uh, therefore uh, the target uh, in uh, uh, 24. And I think that uh, would be enough to go beyond that and to increase rates, uh, say beyond three and a half, I think uh, would uh, imply unnecessarily risks in terms of a deeper recession and possibly some financial instability. Yeah, so they've committed to raising rates for sure, for sure in March. And then after that, you touched on this, it's going to be data dependent. They're going to look at the data and then they're going to decide. What did they, 
What do they need to see specifically? Uh, what are the key sort of data points that they would need to see that a guard would need to see before considering actually pausing rates? Well, I think that the uh, uh, the important thing is the objective itself, which is headline inflation, overall inflation. Uh, at the ECB, we never adopted from the start a core inflation objective as the Fed does. We looked into it at the beginning of monetary union and we saw that uh, the so-called core inflation uh, in the euro area, it's not a reliable, has not been historically a reliable predictor of future overall inflation. So we didn't use core inflation in conducting uh, monetary policy, but rather the headline inflation. And headline inflation will go down very sharply, which is, by the way, uh, implied even by the uh, ECB projections published in December that put inflation in the last quarter of this year at 3.6, which uh, uh, by December will be around three, but I think it will be slightly lower than their uh, their forecast, uh, which shows that uh, indeed uh, inflation will be uh, leading uh, very quickly uh, to levels around 2%, which is the medium-term objective of the ECB uh, monetary policy, uh, uh, as you know. Monetary policy must be always forward-looking and then relying on uh, what is coming uh, and take a view on that. Uh, and uh, it's unavoidable to take uh, a view and not based on what are the, the, act, the present levels of inflation, but look to where they are heading and if indeed, as I say, they stop at 3.25, the deposit facility rate and uh, wait a few months to see if inflation is behaving according to the more consensual forecasts, I think uh, it, would, uh, it would be enough. They are concerned, uh, in my view, uh, too much with uh, what they call uh, core inflation, which is not mm -hmm. the target in the case of uh, the ECB. And that uh, creates the risk of uh, uh, perhaps they uh, doing uh, too much. By the way, the Fed also, I think, is going uh, uh, to do a bit too much. Uh, taking some uh, sort of risk management approach mm -hmm. on the tightening side, which it has, of course, its own uh, dangers. And in the situation of Europe, where uh, a war is still uh, going on and uh, threatens to continue uh, for long, uh, and with the uncertainty that uh, that creates and the impact it has on animal spirits of economic agents, I think uh, the ECB has uh, to be careful, uh, being assured that inflation is indeed going down to the levels I mentioned, which uh, by 24 would be uh, on target. Yeah, the Fed, as you touched on, I mean, although you say that they have, there's a risk of them doing too much, but they did only, yes. only increase interest rates by 25 basis points compared to the ECB, which is about 50 basis points or so. Interesting that you yeah. mentioned the different yeah. levers of inflation. Uh, core inflation, you're mm -hmm. saying, is not as reliable. There's also headline inflation and also Eurozone inflation. There's so yeah. many different levers to look at. Um, but yeah, Constant, Const Victor Constancia, we appreciate you being with us. We are out of time, so thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, Kramatorsk under renewed Russian missile attacks. The latest from there after the break.
eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk is under fire once again, just hours after Russia's deadly missile attack on a residential neighborhood. A local governor says that three people were killed and eight others wounded in Wednesday night strike. A rescue operation is underway right now for at least two others who may be buried beneath the rubble. It comes ahead of the arrival of EU leaders in Kyiv on Friday for a war summit. For those Ukrainian forces on the front lines in the east, the intense battles have been constant with brutal winter conditions now making the fight even more difficult. CNN's Fred Blyken gives us a first-hand look at what they're facing. All-out winter warfare on the eastern front. We're in a trench with Ukrainian paratroopers. They fire on Russian positions using AKs and a U.S.-supplied Browning heavy machine gun. They're searching for weak spots in our position, says the commander, call sign Ghost. They want to see if we fight back. If we show strong resistance, though, they don't advance. And this is what strong resistance looks like. The Russians are only about 400 yards away hidden in the snow and fog, but constantly firing at the entrenched Ukrainians. The enemy uses all kinds of weapons, Bogdan says, small arms, heavy machine guns, artillery, mortars, rocket launchers, and aviation as well. But so far, the Ukrainians say they haven't lost an inch of territory here. The Ukrainians say the situation here is reminiscent of some of the worst times in World War II, where they're not only fighting a strong adversary, but the elements as well. The snow, the mud, and the cold make fighting here even tougher. And Ukraine's leadership believes the Russians will soon escalate even more after mobilizing hundreds of thousands of men for a likely spring offensive. But this gunner, who goes by the name Deputy, says the paratroopers are ready. It will be hard, he says, it will be tough, but we will hold because we stand here for our land. If we don't do it, nobody will. There's a visceral hatred towards Moscow's leaders among these men. In Russia, they have a terrorist dictatorial regime, Bogdan says, so now the civilized world is fighting against this wild medieval dictatorship. As we prepare to leave, incoming grenades explode above. Yeah, let's go. And this, the men say, is a relatively quiet day. They expect much worse in the months to come, but their motto is, if not us, who else? Fred Plaikin, CNN, Krasnoharivka, Ukraine. Oil giant Shell raked in more than double what it made in 2021 after oil and gas prices soared following... Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Europe's largest oil company by revenue, reported a record profit of almost $40 billion last year. More than 40% of Shell's full-year earnings came from its integrated natural gas business, which includes its liquefied natural gas trading operations. Paul and Monica joins us live now. Uh, so, Paul, you know, a lot of people, especially the climate activists, are going to be very unhappy about this. They're going to be triggered by this. But also, just when you think about what's happening around the globe, the fact that the war in Ukraine has left millions of people displaced um, and also millions more people food insecure, especially in the developing world. Meantime, you have oil and gas companies like Shell making out like bandits. Just, just walk us through that. 
Yeah, there obviously is a lot of uh, criticism of the energy companies because of how they've been able to profit from, as you point out, saying this horrible uh, war that's happening in Ukraine. But I think what's even more troublesome for climate activists when they look at this record profit from Shell and many other oil companies is that climate activists want to see the energy giants invest even more in renewable energy. And they aren't doing as much, I think, as climate activists would like. You know, so a company like Shell is still generating such a large percentage of its profits and revenue from traditional fossil fuels, which, as we know, is having a deleterious effect on the uh, the, the climate uh, and the planet. So that is obviously a big problem. And then there are political issues in the U.S., too, with big energy giants like Exxon and Chevron making big, big profits. And that's raising the ire of the White House. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are upset about it. And yeah, I mean, as you point out, they will say that, look, yes, we do invest in renewable energy, but it's not quite as much as perhaps they could be investing. I think that's what's upsetting a lot of people. Paula Monica, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here, challenging the rental car market. I speak with one of the CEOs of global rental car giant Sixth about its plans for growth in a bumper-to-bumper rental space. That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move. Uh, U.S. stocks are up and running on another important day for corporate profits and central bank interest rate decisions. A mixed start to the session. Let's take a look here. As investors weigh the trifecta of rate hikes from the Fed, the Bank of England and the ECB. But another strong advance for tech stocks after Wednesday's strong 2% rally. The Nasdaq now up more than 15% so far this year in the hopes that the Fed will soon pause on rate increases. Tech also uh, getting a bit of a boost here from the Facebook's parent company, Meta. Its shares are up, let's see, nearly 18%, or just over 18%, actually, I should say, in early trading after reporting strong revenues and user numbers. Guidance coming in, very market-friendly, too. Meta is also boosting its stock buybacks. But a different reaction for, for, uh, to earnings from two major U.S. drug companies. Merck is out with weaker forward guidance. Eli Lilly is reporting a revenue miss as well. Shares of both firms beginning the session lower. Another critically important batch of corporate earnings set to be released later today. I'm talking about Apple, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, all about to report their results too soon as well. And the market challenges do not end there. The latest look at the health of the U.S. jobs market will be out this time tomorrow. So make sure you tune in this time tomorrow for that update. The global rental car market is making a comeback after being stunted by the pandemic. Data shows the industry is expected to surpass an estimated $145 billion by 2027, thanks to people traveling more. One company looking to take advantage of all of that is Sixth. Founded more than 100 years ago, the German-based rental car company already operates in over 2,000 locations. I was going to say 200, but actually 2,000 locations with what it says is the largest fleet of premium cars worldwide. Sixth says it sees the potential for even more growth in the United States, launching its Rent the Car Company or car campaign at the end of last year, challenging the A in rent-a-car market. Even with grand growth plans, 
The company says it's not immune to inflation and potential recession. Joining me live now is Alexander Sixth. He's the co-CEO of Sixth Rent-A-Car. Alexander, thank you so much uh, for being with us. And that's really you know, what I want to touch on, this idea of all the sort of different headwinds the US is facing right now. Um, you know, the threat of a recession isn't as great as perhaps we anticipated last year, but it's still there. But obviously, you know, interest rate increases, rise in borrowing costs, the cost of living in this country, inflation. There are a lot of pressures on the U.S. consumer right now. What does that mean uh, for Sixth? Well, Spain, thanks for having me. Uh, in fact, uh, to be honest, we see a pretty positive momentum in the first couple of weeks of 2023. Um, pricing has been pretty good, actually stable, if not increasing. Uh, rental days are picking up significantly. I see we see the same uh, effect in the airline capacity industries, where most of the airports are showing double-digit growth rates where we operate in. So we're pretty confident heading into 2023. But yes, we are not immune uh, to effects of inflation, potential recessions. However, we have a high degree of resilience. We have a highly diversified business in terms of customer groups and regions, a high portion of variable costs, and a very good equity base and obviously a large financial scope of action. Um, so much pent up demand um, as a result of the sort of pandemic coming to, I don't wanna say it's over, but it's as close to being over as it possibly could be. Um, and as a result, you know, after the pandemic, there was a massive increase in demand in terms of airline tickets, uh, massive increase in the number of people wanting to rent cars, obviously. That led to a dramatic increase in prices. Are those prices here to stay? Well, to be honest, uh, we do see a lot of pickup in demand. People stop buying things and they want to buy experiences. And that obviously is true for anything that's related to travel in general. Uh, when it comes to pricing, uh, we see a couple of effects. First of all, there was a global fleet shortage led to undersupply of vehicles. Then the demand recovery. And thirdly, uh, the rent-a-car industry has been stagnating in terms of pricing development over the last 10 years. And what we saw in the last couple of years is basically a catch-up effect on pricing. Uh, we see continuous rise in prices over 2022, but we also see an increase in pricing, especially in Europe, but also in the United States for 2023. So we are pretty confident that pricing will remain stable, if not even increasing in 2023. All right. So given those price increases, how do you separate yourself in terms of the customer experience? What I mean by that is I was just having a, a conversation with one of our producers just before the show who was saying that, look, the issue with renting cars is this idea of when you sort of leave the airport, you end up waiting in line for sometimes ridiculously long amount of times. I've experienced that myself. And then on top of that, you get hit with so many fees. I wrote down a few of them. So many hidden fees, by the way. It's the airport fee. It's the fuel charge. It's the collision damage waiver. It's the early return fee. It's the vehicle licensing fee. And so you never feel that you're actually paying what is on the sticker price. And that can leave a lot of customers being feeling like they've been taken advantage of. How do you separate yourself from that in terms of the customer experience? Well, then I couldn't agree more. Um, our aspiration and the core element of our strategy has always been, we want to be a premium car rental company. We want to create experiences our customers just love. We want to excite our customers with a premium experience along the whole customer journey. I'll give you two examples of May. Uh, one example, we increased our premium share of our vehicles to around 63% globally. That's about 5% up compared to 2019 in the United States. We have the highest premium share of vehicles compared to any other major competitors. And to give you another example leading to your point, 
uh, with our option for mobile checkout, customers don't have to wait in line anymore. They can select their vehicles a couple of hours before their pickup in the app, bypass the counter for speed and convenience, and obviously want to communicate that premium value proposition by a strong and bold brand. That is something we have done in the decades of Europe, and you were leading into that. In the United States, we are still in the beginning for that. That's why we have recently launched our first nationwide brand and communicate exactly that value proposition. And please allow me to share one thing on a personal note. It makes me really, really proud to see mm -hmm. our ads in Times Square these days. I wish my grandfather could have seen this. He started this business after the end of the Second World War. He provided vehicles to the American Armed Forces. And we as a family and as a company, we, are the, we owe the American people a lot. It makes me really proud to give back by scaling our brand and creating jobs in America. Well, thank you so much, Alexander Six. We have to leave it there. Um, I am wondering if there is a way to sort of streamline the process and um, just ensure that there aren't so many hidden fees just from a consumer experience. Obviously, this is not just Six. It's every single car rental company out there that is struggling with this. Um, Alexander Six, life was there. Thank you so much, though. Zane, thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. All right. Coming up after the break, we reveal whether artificial intelligence could indeed put your job at risk. We'll look at the potential career changes facing millions of us and some potential new job opportunities ahead. Recent innovations like chat, GPT and other artificial intelligence tools can sometimes appear to outshine their human counterparts. That means some workers in certain roles will ultimately lose their jobs. But when the technology takes over, when the technology takes over rather, but experts say it also opens up brand new employment opportunities as well. Vanessa Yorkevich uh, joins us live now. So Vanessa, I would like to think, I would like to think that my job is protected. My job involves a little bit of creativity, I guess, some personality, I think, some empathy. <laughs> um, is my job on the chopping block? What are your thoughts? Partly yes, partly no, <laughs> okay, but okay. artificial intelligence has been with us for over a decade. But the masses, America, people around the world are just starting to get introduced to artificial intelligence, particularly through something called ChatGPT. People have been mesmerized by what it can create, but that has quickly turned to a little bit of confusion and concern, thinking, hey, can artificial intelligence do my job better than me? That's the question that we asked. Which jobs is AI coming after first? If you're a middle manager, you're doomed. Any kind of commodity salesperson, report writers and journalists, accountants and bookkeepers, and oddly enough, doctors who are looking, uh, who specialize in things like drug interactions. Do you mean out of a job? No. Or you mean that part of your job? That part. Okay. That's the relief a lot of Americans are looking for right now. The explosion of ChatGPT, an AI platform, showed us it could do a lot of what we humans do at work and faster. Will it take my job? Yes and no. It's not going to replace you. Someone who knows how to use it well is going to take your job, and that's a guarantee. By 2025, the World Economic Forum predicts that 85 million jobs will be displaced by automation and technology but it will also create 97 million new roles. We've seen it before in the auto industry. While the auto worker may be displaced because they are not as good at welding or as painting as the robot, there's probably 35 people that have to be involved in the creation and maintenance of that device that welds better than a person. 
And that's what happened at Carbon Robotics, former auto workers now building an AI laser weeder in Detroit for farms. It's a direct result of the history of auto manufacturing that we have that skill set available to us all in one place. The laser weeder, still operated by a human but run by AI, can do the work of between 40 to 80 people, says the CEO, filling roles that are hard to find humans for. Labor is harder and harder to find every year, particularly farm labor. And an AI system like ours that can do that job automatically saves a lot of time, money, effort. This music is composed solely by artificial intelligence called Ava. It even has an album you can stream. AI music is more affordable. There's no producer, composer, or artist to pay. It's taken away opportunity from songwriters, producers, and artists, right? So the people are trying to feed them for their families. Something similar is happening in the art world, leading artists Kara Ortiz and two others to file a class action lawsuit against three AI art companies for copyright infringement. Ortiz claims they're using her name and art to train the AI. It's feast and famine for most of us. We go job by job. And what happens when there's a little bit less work to go around? Stability AI, one of the companies named, says the suit misunderstands how AI and copyright law work, adding it intends to, quote, defend ourselves and the vast potential generative AI has to expand the creative power of humanity. The two other companies did not respond. I never thought we'd be here. It's like straight out of a sci-fi movie. My father tried to teach me human emotions. There's a wonderful scene in the movie I, Robot. Detective Spooner hates robots. And he says, Can a robot write a symphony? Can a robot turn a canvas into a beautiful masterpiece? And the robot looks up and he goes, Can you? Every one of us is not Mozart or Rembrandt or Picasso or choose your super famous amazing artist or artisan. We're just people. This is not coming to kill us. It's coming to help us. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen iRobot, what ends up happening is the artificial intelligence, the robots, and the humans end up working together for the good of humanity. And that is actually what AI experts think the relationship will be between us and artificial intelligence. And Zane, since I told you at the top in the piece what jobs are going to be taken by artificial intelligence first, here are the jobs that are going to be taken by artificial intelligence last. Preschool and elementary school teachers, professionals professional athletes, politicians, judges, and mental health professionals, because all of those professions require an element of human nature, emotion, judgment. At the end of the day, a preschool teacher will want to give their students a hug, and students want that. So ultimately... Yes, some jobs maybe are going to be transitioning out, but there are still so many that need actual humans like you and I, Zane, to do those jobs. Okay, so there is, I loved your piece, by the way. I I loved watching it. Thank you. There is hope. There is hope. All right, Vanessa Yakevich, I have to leave it there. Thank you so much. That's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. Connect the World is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.